0: three is a magic
1: number
0: the 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 Hello and welcome to third times a charm the show that takes an in-depth look at the third installment of a franchise This is episode 35 Super Mario Brothers 3 I'm your host. Michael Mario, and welcome to this very special video game edition of Third Times a Charm. I am breaking format again, sort of, by covering a video game instead of a feature film, but don't worry, I have some surprises in store, and joining me today, I welcome back Christian Larson, who, from this day henceforth, will be known as my Video Game Consultant. Larson and I go back to the 90's today and talk about a pivot point in human history, the release of Super Mario Bros. 3. Now before we jump in, I just wanted to mention that there are a few other Part 3 video games I'd like to cover but may not get the chance to if this show does indeed end next March. Top of the list, believe it or not, is one of the NES launch titles, a game I didn't even know existed until then, Donkey Kong 3. In DK3, you play as Stanley, not Mario, and have to keep Donkey Kong out of the greenhouse, armed with nothing but your trusty bug spray. You pump chemicals into that great big ape until he retreats to the next level. This game doesn't seem to be very well liked, but I freaking love it. It's one of those one-screen stage games that has some real classic gameplay. It was pretty much trashed for not starring Mario, but rather Stanley, a character who first appeared in the Game & Watch series. So consider that my Donkey Kong 3 review that I've just snuck into my Super Mario Bros. 3 episode. And without any further ado, grab your plunger, put on that Tanuki suit, and get your butt to the Mushroom Kingdom. Because we're talking Super Mario Brothers 3. Christian Larson, thank you for joining me here on Third Time's a Charm. A bit of an unorthodox episode of my show, but you were here the last time I broke the rules with WrestleMania, and here we are again. We are talking video games today, Super Mario Bros. 3. Christian Larson, welcome back to the show.
1: Hello, I'm very glad to be here and and I'm really glad to tackle this particular episode. Like I said, it's one of the stranger assignments I've ever gotten from the Cage Club Network.
0: Yeah, so I am sort of also using this as a backdoor to talk about the Super Mario Brothers movie as well. The movie that came out in 1993. I mean, what other way am I possibly going to be able to bring this up on a podcast except to cheat? a little bit but before we get there we are gonna dive into this game now Larson I wanted you on uh, in particular for a few reasons number one you were there you were there when I was there in
1: 1990
0: yeah we, we were about nine or ten years old you know we got to experience the phenomenon uh and the other reason is uh by all accounts you are a gamer as well like a like a classic gamer more of a, an old school gamer not just a console guy but a, a computer man as well Can you go into a little bit your history with gaming and uh, the release of Mario 3?
1: Yeah, sure. Like you said, it was a phenomenon. I mean, Nintendo was huge, but Mario Bros. 3, when it came out, was the biggest game in the world. I remember there were posters for it everywhere, the Nintendo Power cover story about it it was a big deal and i mean i was a, i was a big nintendo kid of course i always say that the two greatest moments of my life were when i married my wife but ahead of that when i opened a nintendo christmas morning 1986 i just remember being i was like this is the greatest thing that will ever happen to me in my life <laughs> but i loved the nintendo me and my friends would go over each other's houses and play nintendo i had a babysitter who was amazing at nintendo and i would just when i knew that he was coming over i would rent nes games just to sit and watch him Beat them. I remember one night he played through all the Ninja Gaiden games, and they just had these amazing stories. So I was just sitting there for the story, really. When I got older, I I played a lot of adventure games on the PC. I played Sierra, Lucasfilm adventure games, which were sort of like puzzle-solving interactive stories. They were very, very nerdy.
0: They were almost like the predecessor to RPGs. and a
1: lot, yeah, of there things. were a lot of rpg elements probably because they were created by people who probably were the first generation of dungeons and dragons players
0: and there were a lot of quests space quests king's quest Yeah,
1: sierra <laughs> there were two big studios of the genre there was sierra which made king's quest space quest police quest quest for glory all different genres with the same basic game mechanics. And Lucasfilm, coming from George Lucas's crew, they came out with some really creative, really artistic stuff. Loom, Sam and Max. Grim Fandango, of course, is amazing. Just really unique, really interesting stories. They're definitely worth checking out, and a lot of them are available now because adventure gaming is sort of getting a a renaissance.
0: Nice. I definitely am right there with you. I remember that Christmas morning opening up the Nintendo. I actually remember because my friend got it for Hanukkah. Yes, I was uh, under the hypnotic power of Mario Madness as a child. That first game, that second game, just waiting, you know, years and years for it to come out. This this game being sort of like the pinnacle, I think, of my Nintendo experience. Um, I'm pretty sure like, after this came out, I was like, well, the the system's been pushed to its limits to the 16-bit world for me
1: exactly anything else would be a letdown after this
0: i actually have a pretty funny experience with this game because one of my close friends in grade school was japanese and his dad would make frequent trips to japan for business and come back with all these games like ahead of time because it would take time to localize these things you know I was playing the original Super Mario 2 on the disk system. I was playing this like a year and a half before it came out. The
1: the Famicom, right? Wasn't that what it was called?
0: Yeah, the family computer. Famicom for short. But that didn't make it any less impactful when it was released in north america in 1990 i mean it's also funny larson if you think about it how this like kicked off the 90s like this would hold us over till grunge which (laughs) would hold us over till the internet
1: yeah and and the mario brothers were a huge cultural phenomenon in a lot of different ways there was the television show with captain lou that was on the air before mario 3 came out there was mario merchandise everywhere People who were kids in the mid to late 80s, Mario was a huge part of their lives.
0: Yeah, it might also be hard to imagine that, like, this is a time where arcades were still flourishing pretty well. Like, there was a couple I could probably name, like, three. You know, there's, like, In the Swing, Fun and Game, Sports World, like, just in oh, our general man, vicinity. man,
1: In the Swing. Holy <laughs> and shit. And so for
0: this to still dominate, like, it, it's kind of funny. It makes me think of, like, movies and television. You know, like, the movies are the arcade, the television is the Nintendo. You know, kids would stay home to play Mario 3.
1: For sure. I mean, I, of course, would go to the, the video rental store every, every Friday night and get my stack for the weekend. And once they started renting out video games, I would get a lot of video games from there. And you could also rent the consoles as well. And I remember when Mario came out, when Mario 3 came out, you could pre-rent Mario 3. And that's something I had <laughs> never seen before. And it was it was completely unavailable for weeks after it came out. And there were signs everywhere. You couldn't rent a console for it it was crazy.
0: I read online about when like Zelda 2 and Mario 2 came out, there was some sort of rumor about a chip shortage, which is why they was, you know, took so long and all that kind of stuff. But from what I gathered, there's no reason why it took so long for this game to come out, except for the fact that Super Mario Brothers 2 was, I think that was released in 1988 in North America. And This was released that year in Japan, so like, you couldn't release Mario 2 and 3 a year after each other, you know? They kind of had to sit on this for a few years, I think.
1: From what I understand, and you're probably familiar with this too, is that Super Mario 2 was never meant to be a Mario Brothers game.
0: That's right. The original Lost Levels was deemed too difficult for North American children.
1: That I did not
0: know. The rumor is that the president of Nintendo North America took one look at it and said, you know, it's too similar, there's no way kids are going to like this, like, it's too difficult.
1: Yeah, it was just the first game but harder. When Mario 2 came out, there was also, obviously, a lot of anticipation for it. And when it came out and it was not... Very much like the original, for obvious reasons, because it wasn't supposed to be the A Mario Brothers game you know you're you're jumping around pulling vegetables out of the ground the world design was totally different the enemies were totally different and they they explained it away by saying it was all just a dream that Mario was having so that was another reason why anticipation was so high for the third one because it was going to be a return to form
0: exactly and it's interesting that uh, over time that version of Mario 2, it got released in Japan as Super Mario USA, and lots of elements have crossed over into the Mario world proper, and you'll even start to see it in Mario 3. I think a couple enemies from Mario 2 start to rear their heads here and there and stuff, and I'm also convinced that's where they got the idea of the different overworld themes, because if you play Mario 1, everything is... you have... The overworld, the underworld, and the water worlds. But then Mario 2 has like a desert, and ice land, and all these other things. And in Mario 3, you know, there's eight levels split up between these different maps. And you have like your ice world, your desert, and then they've added like giant land, which I think is my favorite, and pipe world, which is just a hellish maze that I can never get through.
1: <laughs> you know, the overworld map and the, the ability to choose what level you're going to go to next and go to different places almost a little bit open world not really but
0: a little rpg yeah as well, like it right? gave
1: you a a feeling of freedom that you didn't get from side-scrolling platform games
0: yeah I also liked how it felt like a board game too
1: yeah to well that's that's sort of a Nintendo thing. The Nintendo company was a company that created gambling games, card games, board games, casino games. You know, I guess eventually they found out that video games could be just as addictive. <laughs> but but you see a lot of gambling elements in Nintendo games, especially the ones, you know, that, that were created by these Japanese teams where it's kind of part of the culture. You know, in, in Mario 2, I remember there was like a slot machine at the end of every level. In this yeah. one, you can go to these little houses and play games of chance with mushroom people so it's it's definitely interesting how that kind of comes through
0: and always with the coin collecting with mario right always grabbing that money there's something seeping through there
1: but i mean this game i think i can sum it all up by saying that this is an example, whether you talk about movies or you talk about the third album of a band, you know, it's the perfect third entry because it takes everything that made people love it to begin with, and it adds all this new stuff, but somehow it still feels familiar.
0: Yeah, and it feels very organic to the game as well as far as story and gameplay because we're used to getting power-ups now from the first game with the mushroom and the flower and now and so adding all these different suits and abilities and everything it feels it's like a natural progression you know and so while you're playing it it doesn't seem out of left field or anything I was like oh great like what other suits am I going to discover in here
1: yeah yeah I mean I prepared for this by watching a playthrough of the whole thing but I also still have that NES from 1986 and I fired up Mario Brothers Three. And it's amazing how the muscle memory of that first level came back to me. Like, I could put on Mario Brothers 3 and play through that first level with my eyes closed after 35 years. But part of what makes that first level great is that it looks like an original Mario Brothers level. With better graphics, of course, but all the enemies are the same. The basic level layout is the same. And then you get the leaf and become flying mario and it's like your mind is blown you're like mario can fly now but you're right it seemed organic it seemed like the next logical step like of course in a mario brothers game mario would grow a tail and be able to fly like why not why not
0: (laughs) (laughs) they wanted to have him riding yoshi around in this one but they just they couldn't get it together apparently they just you know too much between not enough processing power and not enough yeah. time, they couldn't get the dinosaur in there. But it's such like a step up on so many different levels because not only is like Mario powered up and stuff, but the enemies too, you know, like the Goombas fly. There's there's like Boomerang Brothers instead of Hammer Brothers. There's all the Koopa kids, not just Bowser, you know, like they came back swinging. This reminds me more of like WrestleMania 3 than like a third movie. It's something that sort of took the mold and, and reforged it and said like, look, you could actually improve on this somehow. And it recreated the template for what was to go forward. I see the influence of this game and everything after it. You know, it's like a nexus point almost in video game.
1: When you think about it, every major Mario release is a completely new thing. Like remember Mario 64? Oh yeah. That was like an entirely new dimension, literally.
0: They use the franchise to like reinvent every form of gameplay with every new console that comes out. It's the flagship title. It's like, look at what's possible with the power of this machine here. It sets the bar so high. I feel like so many games never reach that level. And so it's like, it's great, but it's also sort of like a letdown.
1: Well, I mean, the N64 in retrospect, especially is a letdown just because 3D graphics at that time looked terrible. But of course, there were games like Goldeneye and Mario 64 and Mario Kart and a few others that were just fantastic fantastic games it's just that the graphics weren't quite there yet you brought up the Koopa kids one of the interesting things I've found out about this each level the bad guy is one of Koopa's offspring and in America they each had clever names and some of them were references to American celebrities like there was Morton Koopa Jr.
0: which is a very Very bizarre reference for a children's game. If you'd like to explain that, please. Yeah,
1: well, Morton Downey Jr. was a local television host in the 80s that was sort of the Bill O'Reilly, the Rush Limbaugh, but mixed with Howard Stern. He was known as the Mouth. He would chain-smoke cigarettes. He'd call people dirtbags. He'd get into physical confrontations.
0: He was an agitator. Yeah, and he was super
1: right wing. (laughs) if you look up clips from his show online but to name one of the bosses in a a Nintendo game you know I I didn't really know who Morton Downey Jr. was at the time I just knew that he was the guy that my uncle would watch his show and then he wouldn't shut up about immigrants for a week
0: (laughs) yeah especially considering so many of these are named after musicians like that was a a big trend of them like they could have named him Axel well well,
1: here's the thing their names were mostly based on their appearances okay so ludwig von koopa was the one with the wild white hair and there was one with sunglasses called roy koopa which was actually a reference to roy orbison
0: again another famous children's star
1: Here's the fascinating thing I learned from reading up on this game. The American translation team named them all, gave them all names based on their appearance. But what they were really supposed to be were representations of seven programmers from the Mario 3 team. It was apparently like very collaborative. It was like 10 guys in a room coming up with all this stuff. And the main, I forget the name of the main like the sh- oh,
0: Shigeru Miyamoto, yeah, a- and yeah. he he
1: was such a fan of the process and the people he worked with that he decided that the seven bosses would all look like seven members of the team. So they're not supposed to look like Ludwig von Beethoven or Roy Orbison; they're supposed to look like specific programmers. Who made this game?
0: That's hilarious in that it's just like the localization team just doing what they want. Yeah. Just, just you know, changing things left and well, right.
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> there's certain things that they can't expect a nine year old in New Jersey to pick up on.
0: That's true. But I mean, how many are picking up on <laughs> Morton
1: Townie. You know, Morton Downey Jr.
0: Yeah. as well. Uh, Is there anything else about this game specifically? Uh, I know for me, I think the graphics are great. Gameplay, you mentioned, is ultra tight.
1: Well, I wanted to bring up the uh, very specific items. Like, There were certain items you would get, like there was a like a cloud shaped like a tooth that you could use to skip a level. There was a music box that made the Hammer Brothers fall asleep. And of course there was the suits. There was the raccoon suit, the frog suit. But in this run-through that I watched there was a Hammer Brothers suit you could get, which was very rare.
0: Yeah, I think it's only on like two stages.
1: Yeah, and it allowed you to throw hammers like the Hammer Brothers, which killed every enemy instantly. And if you press down, you could curl up into your shell and be protected. What I noticed is that this guy whose video I was watching was very good at the game. So at the end of each stage, he would usually either be wearing a raccoon suit or a hammer suit. And when you meet the king at the end if you're wearing a different outfit he says something different to you normally it's just like thank you for returning me to my old self here's a letter from the princess but if you're dressed as a raccoon he says thank you kind raccoon please tell me your name And if you're wearing the Hammer Brothers suit, the king says, Hey you, how about lending me your clothes? No dice? What a drag. I thought I knew everything about this game. The other thing I wanted to say, we we went over the the levels before. They were really cool levels. The giant level was always my favorite
0: mind-blowing as a kid i love that level
1: if you were lucky enough to be good at this game or find all the warp whistles or have a friend that was good at this game you got to see level eight which was like hell
0: yeah the dark world yeah it was bowser's kingdom
1: (laughs) Where, where you're just you have to go past all these giant tanks with huge cannons and there's a boat And there's like a bridge you cross where a hand will come up and grab you into a level. There's more airships, the airships, and then another series of hard levels, and then another tank, and then the castle. If you read Nintendo Power or heard hints from friends, you were able to get all the warp whistles really easily and just skip to the last level. But like most of the time I didn't even bother because the last level was so insanely difficult.
0: Yeah, this game has a learning curve for sure. Like that if you skip ahead, you will get punished. Like playing it through grooms you for the end. And then I feel like by then you could take any of that, that you can get through any stage.
1: That's actually what they said. You know, it's funny you brought up that the original Mario Brothers 2 was thought to be too difficult. And I think they had that in mind when making. Three, because there was a quote in there where the lead programmer was saying that it's made for all skill levels because it increases slowly in skill levels. So you can be not very good at Mario Brothers and still enjoy the first three levels. But once you get to the cloud world or the pipe maze world,
0: it's pure platforming madness. The one other thing I wanted to mention about this is if you play the original Japanese version, there's one difference that I noticed if you are a raccoon or have firepower or are wearing a suit in the American version if you get hit you revert back to Super Mario but if you get hit in the Japanese version you revert back to normal Mario it's a little more difficult on that level it's just another example of like oh yeah you know we gotta make it a little easier
1: and of course at the end when you beat the game you go to the princess and she says that famous line from the first game sorry Mario our princess is in another castle and then she follows that up with ha ha
0: ha just kidding goodbye
1: like you went through all this trouble I'm gonna fuck with you and then I'm just gonna leave
0: but we do get treated to a nice curtain call with a pretty cool closing credit sequence yeah and I
1: love that Kind of Latin style music for the closing credits. Pretty great.
0: Yeah, the music all around in the Mario series, top notch. You know, the first super infectious one, but I mean, even coming back here with part three, like a lot of nice tunes. You know, everything feels like it belongs.
1: I read another interesting thing. The composer of the game was the composer from the first game, and he said that after the first game, people came up to him saying that they heard uh, Latin and fusion influences in his music, and he had no idea what that meant. That was not his intention at all, but he went and studied different forms of music that people turned him on to and used that as an influence for the third one.
0: Well, one thing about this game that I think is quite unique was part of its marketing push in that there was this film in 1989 starring Fred Savage and Christian Slater, third build Bo Bridges, I believe, called The Wizard. And this game was very important to that movie's third act and featured pretty heavily in commercials, in marketing, in, in the movie itself. It really changed the shape of product placement in Hollywood to say, like, just go for it. Just pack it in there. Do whatever. But, uh, Larson, do you have any memories of The Wizard as we transition from game to film here?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it came out when I was a kid, and that was the first and last time I saw it was at my friend's house. And I remember I wasn't so much interested in the movie, but the movie was going to give, like, back before the internet, the only place you could see gameplay footage of Super Mario 3 was if you went to see the Wizard. That was like the big selling point for a lot of kids was that if you go see the Wizard or rent the Wizard you'll see 10 seconds worth of Super Mario 3 (laughs) and that was all I needed.
0: Yeah, I think there's more footage from the Ninja Turtles game than Super Mario 3 in this movie.
1: But yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure at the time, because the Wizard certainly hasn't had the same cultural uh, legs that the Mario Brothers franchise has had. And even back then, I don't think it was a huge movie, but a large percentage of the people interested in it were only interested because of Super Mario Three.
0: Yeah, the movie helped the game. The game did not help the movie. Is probably how I would put it. Um, I think the movie also helped the Power Glove to a degree because that is also featured in the film at one yes, point. Yes, it is. There's a really great documentary about the Power Glove out right now uh, on streaming services. I recommend that one. But the Wizard, you know, I've I would say it's worth a revisit now that we're older. I think you'd be a little surprised. It's it's actually kind of a touching drama about two brothers. It's it's not unlike Rain Man.
1: Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what I remember.
0: Yeah, it's it's a road trip movie. It's got. You know, talk about gambling, you got underage kids gambling in this all over the place. It reminds me a little bit of Over the Top. Oh, sure. You know, it's it's in that same vein, it would be a nice double feature.
1: Well, I'll tell you, back then, when I heard Nintendo and Movie together, I really wasn't going to be interested unless it was a Mario Brothers movie, or even better, a Legend of Zelda movie.
0: Really quickly, on the point of a Zelda film, if you listen to the Cruise Club episode of Legend, I make a pretty good case, I think, for that being an influence for the Legend of Zelda, the game. There is a lot going on there that it you could just keep going with that title. Not just Legend, but Legend of Zelda. That movie, I think, is a very close representation of that game, believe it or not. Yeah, upon second viewing. It would be about four or so years, Larson, that we'd need to wait for a Super Mario Brothers movie proper. Yes. And, oh, was the wait worth it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I ran to go see this in the theaters. It's 93, so I was... Getting a little past Mario Brothers, I guess I was 13, 14 years old, so I was kind of over it at that point, but still, I'd been waiting my whole life to see a Mario Brothers movie, and Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo seemed perfectly cast.
0: Yeah, I would just like to say, if I may, as a kid, how much I knew about John Leguizamo. HBO would run, like, his comedy specials, like, ad nauseum, but I liked them and would watch them. So when he was announced, I was like, holy crap, I can't believe he's in this movie.
1: Yeah, he actually, there was was a quote where he said, Hollywood has been hiring Italians to play Latin people from the beginning. Now it's uh, it's time for me to take a step in the other direction.
0: Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo of Mario & Luigi. What was your viewing experience like, though, once you got to the theater?
1: Well, sort of like firing up Mario Brothers 3 on my Nintendo, watching this movie... It all came flooding back to me, all the memories, and they were not very good ones. I think it's just because, well, there's a lot of reasons why this movie went wrong, but the biggest thing it does is it forgets that its audience has certain expectations for a Mario Brothers movie, and it blows them all. It (laughs) creates this ridiculous convoluted story about how Earth and the dinosaur lands became two different dimensions, and there's an asteroid shard, and all this high-concept stuff. And not only is it hard to follow, not only is this whole idea of like a dystopian dimension where Koopa is a dictator and there's de-evolution and e-evolution, like not only is all that not what we wanted, but we've been living in the Mario Brothers world for like almost 10 years at this point, we knew more about the lore of Mario Brothers than all of these screenwriters put together. And that unfortunately includes Ed Solomon from uh, the Bill and oh Ted No. Movie. Although I feel like Ed Solomon probably just was brought in for some punch up. But it's like every time they pass an opportunity to make a decent Mario Brothers reference or to tie it in somehow with the video game history. They blow it completely in in favor of this weird dystopian plot and it's like didn't you know who was gonna come see your movie
0: that was the thing that confused me the most is how i'm sitting there knowing exactly how this story should go and at every turn it goes the wrong direction or somewhere you'd never expect like from the very beginning where you know at this point sure mario was riding around on yoshi and super mario world and all that kind of stuff but there's There's nothing about dinosaur dimension after the asteroid hit. And yeah, they just recreate everything from the ground up and then sprinkle in references from the games, like visual cues and stuff, not even really story or plot lines.
1: I get it. Like the Mario Brothers games, to recreate that in live action is crazy, although I feel like Detective Pikachu kind of did a the best possible job of taking something ridiculous and cartoony and putting it into a world where at least it was theoretically plausible and, and still being true to its subject material, unlike this movie. It opens up, like, before the title screen, you hear the original Mario Brothers music. When I was sitting there in the theater, and the first thing I hear Here is like the original Mario Brothers music. I'm like, yes, this is going to be everything I thought it would be. And then immediately you just get this exposition, like the DNA strand at the beginning of Jurassic Park. It's like, this isn't what Mario Brothers is about.
0: I think this was the first movie I saw by myself as a teen. No one wanted to go check this out <laughs> at the time. I think, like you said, everyone had sort of aged on by now. I was, yeah, spending probably more time playing Street Fighter uh, than running around the Mushroom Kingdom, but that didn't mean I didn't have, and I didn't understand it at the time, but I had, like, a nostalgia already for this, and it was kicking in because it was being challenged, you know? Like, I didn't know what was happening at the time, but my reaction reaction to this film while I was watching it was because like you said like we had a fondness for something like it had only been 10 years or so but it was so deeply ingrained already (laughs) because like we had been playing that game every day so like as a kid like you don't understand it but you almost feel betrayed and it's like a real turnoff man like I don't know like it bummed me out and this also sort of kick-started an entire wave of not unfounded criticism about how incredibly difficult and almost impossible it would be to adapt a video game into a feature film. And it was just bomb after bomb.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really can't think of a a successful popular video game movie from the 90s. Uh, The first Mortal Kombat movie, I guess, was not critically acclaimed, certainly, but had its fans and and the Resident Evil movies. But again, that isn't until much later. We were talking about how This movie is completely different than what anybody would expect. And these people had a vision. The production design of this dystopian Koopa world is incredible. The cars, the streets, people put a lot of work into this. But what it comes off as is these people knew nothing about the Mario Brothers franchise. They may have read like a bullet points summary of the Mario Brothers, but in their minds, they wanted to be Tim Burton and Terry Gilliam wrapped up in one.
0: Either of them would have killed this project. Yeah,
1: I was thinking that myself because I'm, I'm looking at this dystopian street and I'm like, this is something out of Tim Burton, this is something out of Terry Gilliam, but it doesn't work here. Mario Brothers is fun and bright, and this is dark and cynical, and there's some real kind of adults stuff in this movie
0: yeah the tone here is definitely off for sure I think it starts well I mean it doesn't start well with a mother abandoning her child at an orphanage yeah. and then getting killed by King Koopa in yeah. the sewers I mean I don't mean that I just mean like when we're introduced to Mario and Luigi and they're sort of racing around trying to plumb and all that
1: kind of stuff trying to plumb yeah that's yeah when I when they cut to after the bizarre introduction they cut to like the exterior of Mario and Luigi's Brooklyn and And immediately I thought of the Captain Lou Albano show because that was a live representation of Mario Brothers. That's the one that I knew. And... You know, we kind of get that. And they have a good relationship. They're both great. They're doing what they can with the material. Their brotherly relationship is very nice. And they both play the characters well.
0: It actually, story-wise, starts off pretty okay, too. I like that they're going with Luigi instead of Mario as the main character, because I never felt like Luigi got his due in the game. Oh, sure. So that's kind of a nice thing there. And I think that might be my favorite part of the of the whole operation that they've changed here going on but you know they have to establish a relationship with the girl before she gets captured right because that's the game you know like go rescue the princess yeah yeah. so everything up until they get to the not mushroom kingdom i'm kind of with with this rewatch i'm like this could be all right and then we get to the other dimension and i'm like oh shit like what the hell happened like we went immediately to world eight where it's hell on earth you know (laughs) like we skipped the desert we skipped the underwater land like what is happening like there's a clear-cut path from beginning to end with this story that they just rewrote in spray paint but i wanted to bring that up because there are sort of like good things going on just not in the sense of super mario brothers like there's stuff here that be cool if it was called something else starring maybe one of these guys, you know? There's a way to sort of make this into a movie that works, but not a video game movie that
1: works. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I said to you before we recorded, I was like, there is a movie to be made here. And it's like 70% of the way there. It's just not a Mario Brothers movie.
0: Really, like, just scrape it of all the Mario references and we're kind of good to go.
1: Yeah, I mean, this really well-thought-out dystopian world with a evil dictator, it it reminded me a lot both visually and plot-wise, to a certain extent, of Total Recall, which I love.
0: Okay. Yeah, well, this is very much in the vein of something you would get from, like, Roger Corman or canon films during the 80s that would go straight to video where it's, you know, just papier-mâché space fights and things like that of that nature.
1: I would love to see Paul Verhoeven's take on this stuff, you know, or Tim Burton or <laughs> Terry Gilliam, you know. This would have been a great story in, in any of their hands, but, you know, again, minus the Mario Brothers references of which there are not very many.
0: So some of the new elements that I kind of like, like we're saying here, like things that, you know, don't belong in a Super Mario movie, but are kind of cinematic and cool on their in their own right, the concept of... De-evolving and evolving oneself like that. I think that's that's really interesting. That's a cool thing that they kind of explore pretty well in this. You know, I actually like the concept of the asteroid hit the planet and created a parallel world. It's kind of also cool that it's like this reptilian world instead of a mammal-based world. Like, there's some cool yeah, shit going I, on here, I hate to admit.
1: That's a good point. I could get on board with all of this stuff It was if it was a different movie, you know, and it even, you know, Hopper's doing a great job chewing up the scenery as the evil dystopian dictator. I was especially impressed with Fiona Shaw as his like, right-hand woman. Oh, yeah, she's
0: in um, Killing Eve.
1: I immediately went to her IMDb because I was like, I know her. I I mean, she's a very striking woman. But, I mean, she, she had a really interesting character in this movie. Again, it felt like something out of a completely different movie where, like, basically the princess is the daughter of the king and queen, and Koopa overthrew the king. And this woman who's Koopa's assistant used to be close to the queen, to the old queen. She makes several cryptic comments about how she knew her mother quite well. And she was always jealous of her mother. And now it's her time to be the queen. and. She's really just way too complicated and interesting for this movie, but she's great. Uh, Fiona Shaw, she's one of those people that you know you've seen. I mean, unfortunately, most people know her as Harry Potter's evil aunt from the Harry Potter movies, but she's been everywhere.
0: Yeah, in Killing Eve, I don't know if you're familiar with that show, but I just started watching it like a month or two ago, and she's like the head of like a secret organization part of MI6. So it's almost like a bond kind of thing. Oh, that's cool. But she's great. And, but you're totally right though, man, because Koopa doesn't have a queen, you know, like it's kind of cool how he's like a military general, but like, again, this, the whole reason why he's kidnapping the princess is to, you know, be his wife and all that. That's, how the story goes so in this what he's just going around kidnapping women from brooklyn left and right like he's just got a whole room filled with girls just hoping that one of them is gonna be wearing this locket that is part of a ancient meteorite that's gonna fuse the two worlds together okay but not in a mario movie like what is happening
1: yeah and you know we were talking before about tones again so much of this is dark there's like some weirdly sexual stuff in it Like when Mario and Luigi get arrested at first and they're brought to this like dystopian jail, the desk sergeant is getting a back rub from a woman in high heels, like with her high heels. I don't know if you noticed that.
0: I never picked up on that.
1: Yeah, but the arrest scene in particular, like you've got these two guys who are being arrested by this authoritarian police system this should be really intense and scary and it it looks intense and scary but you've got this wacky score happening the whole time and there's two bumbling henchmen
0: one of which is fisher Stevens. yes well they're supposed to be two of the Koopa cousins like they're one of those or at least that's what you know when they took this script and rewrote it as a Super Mario Brothers script they, yeah, they I, wrote I doubt they
1: in. even thought of it that far I mean I basically I, I think that they were making their dystopian sci-fi movie and they were like it's a Mario Brothers movie so kids are going to be watching it so we're going to have to put some things in here that kids will like and recognize okay let's take a cartoony score and stick that over scenes of horrific violence and humiliation. Also, what do kids like? They like two henchmen, one of which is weaselly and one of which is really dumb. Uh, Kids love that. Throw that in there, too.
0: And with the rest of the money, let's license that top 40 hit, Everybody Rocked the Dinosaur. (laughs) Because they were singing it on the way to the theater and they'll be jamming on the way home. Oh, yeah.
1: If you're talking about spending money, this movie...
0: Oh, it's on the screen, right? You can see where it went.
1: All of this today would have been CG. The crazy apocalyptic city streets and the jail cells. Somebody actually went through the trouble of building all of this stuff. And it's very detailed, like even down to the the signage and the background. You know, somebody put a lot of work and a lot of thought and a lot of money into this, which is probably why it was such a failure, because it was probably really expensive.
0: Some of the... Easter eggs, as it were, that you actually see in this movie. There's a ba-bomb in this, which is actually introduced in the second game. Yeah. There's a bullet bill, but it's like microscopic or like it's very miniaturized. They finally put on their classic colors by the end of the movie in their overalls. There's a mushroom. I couldn't really think of that much else. Yoshi pops up at some point.
1: Yeah, the henchmen with the tiny dinosaur heads are called Goombas. Like, there are so many things watching this movie. I was thinking what it was like sitting in that theater. And every now and then a moment would happen, and I would be like, come on!
0: Yeah, I think it's like a Mojo Nixon gets transformed. You know, kids, it's Mojo Nixon! Hey, you know him, don't you? It's like, I, I hardly knew him now, but he gets transformed into a Goomba.
1: Mojo Nixon's role was supposed to be played by Tom Waits, but they couldn't get him. So they were like, who else plays guitar and is weird? But yeah, like, seeing those henchmen come out with the tiny dinosaur heads, and those are the Goombas? It's like, did you ever even play this game?
0: There's the thesis statement. Yeah. Did these people even ever play the game? I don't think they did. No. I have a feeling there were some crazy drunken days on this set. Oh, man. I mean, it's I don't know that it's well documented, but there's been an oral history about this film online, and Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo came out and said, yeah, they were basically just like loaded the whole time, just drinking as much as they could to deal with the incompetence and craziness that was going on and and just like the arrogance and and lack of experience of the people in charge doing whatever. Uh, So I could only imagine what Dennis Hopper had to do to put up with
1: this. I did read that Bob Hoskins was drinking quite a bit, but I think part of that was because he had some kind of very painful physical injury. So he was in a lot of pain making this movie in more ways than one. And it kind of reminded me of Raul Julia in Street fighter the movie here is a highly respected actor with a theatrical background who's now slumming it in a video game adaptation but also is dying the whole time like what an indignant
0: it's too bad too because he did Roger Rabbit, which was, it's incredible. Like, one of the most amazing Ah, movies, like, ever still, like, just incredible. And he's incredible in it, so it's not that crazy that he would sign on to make this movie, you know? No, not at all. Even sort of sight on just being described, like, what's going on, what it is, what it's about, and all that thing. Like, having come from Roger Rabbit makes perfect sense to make this project.
1: For Roger Rabbit, Roger Rabbit was a movie where, like, he was probably told, like, oh, you're gonna be in this movie with a cartoon rabbit. And he was like, "Uh, fuck that. And then he found out that it was a lot smarter than he thought. So he was like, oh, maybe I'll do this Mario Brothers movie. Maybe this will be a hidden gem. And uh kind of was the opposite.
0: I heard that Dennis Hopper's grandson at the time like, told him to do this movie. He had no idea what it was.
1: The interesting thing about it, and, and I think maybe why they don't actually wear the red and green outfits until towards the end, is that this is set up to be the first of a franchise at the very end you know luigi says goodbye to the princess and she's like i have to stay here and i'm like i'm like oh well they're setting it up so that they see each other again and then at the very end they're relaxing in the mario brothers apartment and she bursts in and she's like we need your help back in the mushroom kingdom and clearly they had some hope that there was going to be a sequel
0: they had the hubris to believe
1: but they they flew too close to the sun <laughs> kind of like in level 2 of super mario brothers 3
0: oh yeah with the angry sun the angry stage nintendo has been they've been put off making movies based off of their game franchises and ips for a really long time mostly because of this movie they really had no interest at the time to be deeply involved in, you know studios at the time you know there was no synergy like there is today so like nintendo the video game company didn't really care what was going on with the movie you know why would they care but then when it came out and it sort of like not tarnished their reputation but definitely like took a hit right like this made it seem like oh the the franchise or the the property is not infallible
1: maybe making movies about video games is not as safe a bet as we thought.
0: Yeah, and if we do it again, we need to be involved like 100%. I think that's why there has unfortunately not been a proper Legend of Zelda film, a Metroid movie, for crying out loud. I mean, I feel like we've been deprived of a lot of stuff. And I mean, and then there's a lot of third-party company games I'd like to see movies made of, too. But I mean, just those alone from Nintendo have a a lot of properties that they could be making money off of in the theaters. But there's rumblings that they are putting a mario movie together again could you imagine if it was a direct sequel to this one and we got john leguizamo back
1: (laughs) oh my god as you know training the new mario brothers because you know the new mario brothers would have to be like 20 years old he'd be the king of the
0: mushroom kingdom at this point right mario would have died off and then maybe his children have to go out into our world or something. And it's sort of like a crocodile Dundee thing. Halfway through, (laughs) they come back to the Mushroom Kingdom.
1: (laughs) The reason why video game movies disappeared was because so few of them were actually successful I mean we mentioned a few before but it's like they were very rarely ever a financial or critical success and in the past few years they've kind of gotten the formula down you know Detective Pikachu did really well Sonic did fantastic I didn't see it but from what I heard is they sort of did a really good job of balancing the sort of like self referential meta quality of referencing the video games with you know making a fun kids movie and still keeping it clever enough for adults you know that's a hard line to walk with kids movies and they get a lot of their writers from the comedy world I think do you remember the Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs movies oh yeah they're great they're so Good. And part of the reason why they're so good is because they're faithful enough to the original material, they're clever enough for adults, and they're fun enough for kids. And I think, you know, Hollywood is really just a giant corporate think tank where they try to appeal to as many quadrants as possible. So I think they've got it down. I know that the upcoming Mario Brothers movie, or at least the one that's being Added around is being helmed by a producer for Portlandia. So that might give you some idea as to the tone of it.
0: Interesting. They're going to put a hat on it or put it in a jar? Put a hat <laughs> on it. Yeah. It comes down to tone a lot for me because it's hard to really nail down who's playing what games these days. You know, like I play a lot of quote unquote retro games or classic games, which might be perceived as like geared more towards kids and i see a lot of kids playing stuff like red dead redemption right which are geared more towards adults and things so it's tricky you know the demographics all over the map when it comes to who's playing what
1: the other thing is that there are so many games these days is you don't have a single entity like mario like the legend of zelda like sonic where it's so recognizable and universal. You know, they made the Sonic movie. When's the last time anybody was talking about Sonic? But that was just sort of for the parent. I'll bet you most kids who went to the Sonic movie have never played a Sonic game. I can't really think of a current video game character that would be so popular that they'd make a game for it.
0: Yeah. And I feel like the game movies that work best are the ones that are already sort of programmed to be more cinematic as you're playing them, anyway. Like the recent. Tomb Raider stuff or like um, what was the one like Assassin's Creed like these movies I feel like they worked better because the games that they were adapted from were using film mechanics to tell their stories while you're playing them in the first place you know so like the line has been blurred so much while you're playing a game that it feels like you're watching a movie or like you're involved in a more of a cinematic experience there's almost no reason to adapt these games anymore you know it's like you're getting it as you're playing it too so you should just you know sit down.
1: The other interesting thing is that the games you mentioned have pretty complex stories already built in. With something like Mario Brothers, the story is Rescue the Princess. There is no story. And so to make a movie based on that requires a lot of creative interpretation and we saw what happened when, when that interpretation gets out of hand with the mario brothers movie
0: i'm still convinced that these two as soon as they got the gig to make this movie they pulled this script out of a drawer they've just been waiting to make this and they're like shit if we have to call it super mario brothers we'll call it super mario brothers but we yeah. finally get to make our dream project
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: larson anything else you'd like to mention about the world of mario before we say goodbye today
1: uh, tell you this was such a great opportunity to get back into that era when mario ruled the world i mean the mario brothers are still a cultural phenomenon but not nearly like they were in the late 80s so it was pretty cool for better or worse to go back to that time and experience the game and the movie.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on this very special episode of Third Times a Charm. There is also recently the lost episode of the Legendary Monkey Club was released uh, online, so everyone should go check that out. But is there anywhere that you'd like people to find you on the internet? anywhere they should check you out?
1: Oh, well, actually, during the quarantine, I'm hosting movie nights on Zoom. I put together all kinds of pre-show video, trailers, we do a little secret post show there's a chat during the whole thing we do video trivia beforehand it's a lot of fun so if you're not already following me on facebook uh you can follow my instagram captain good times c-a-p-n good times and i'll post about it there but we've got a really fun group of regulars and uh and it's great
0: excellent well thank you very much and talk to you soon
1: always a pleasure mike see ya
0: That's going to do it for this super episode of Third Times a Charm. Got to thank my gaming consultant, Larson, for stopping by to talk about the classic NES and Super Mario Bros. 3, as well as taking that trip to another dino dimension and talking about Super Mario Bros. the movie. Of course, catch Larson on the Legendary Monkey Club, but also be on the lookout for his new podcast about PC gaming coming soon. I forgot to ask Larson if he's played or seen any iteration of Super Mario Maker, where you make... Your own levels for all the Super Mario Bros. games. I own the first Mario Maker, but haven't used it in a while. However, making levels is a ton of fun. Getting people to play them? Not so easy, though. Well, for all things third time's a charm, go to CageClub.me, Facebook.com slash CageClub, or CageClubPod on Twitter and Instagram. Write to me at 3 at CageClub.me. Check out my nearly abandoned Facebook page, where I should be posting back episodes and news and stuff, but haven't in a really long time. But while you're at cageclub.me, check out all the back episodes of this show, as well as the over 25 other podcasts on the network. At the moment, hear me and Joey on the TomTom Tom Club, where we've been going through the works of both Hanks and Cruise weekly. We're running out of Cruise movies, so soon it'll just be Hanks for a while. So check all that out today. And until next time... Three, that's a magic number. Three, it is. It's the magic number. Three makes stuff in me, and that's the magic number. What does it all mean?